Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, we take a look at the spectre that's still haunting the Chancellor, even as he sets out his new budget. We also take a look at the growing normalisation of sectarianism on the island of Ireland, intriguingly through the form of TikTok. And finally, what makes a great diarist and what makes Henry Chips Channon's diary so compelling to read? First up. It seems like the Chancellor's second budget has gone down relatively well, but Kate Andrews, The Spectator's economics correspondent, writes in this week's cover article about the spectre that's still haunting the Chancellor. She joins me now together with economist Julian Jessup, formerly Chief Economist at the Institute of Economic Affairs. So Kate, can you tell us about what's keeping the Chancellor up at night? Well, a lot of people in the weeks leading up to the budget were discussing potential tax hikes that the chancellor might bring in as something that he would do to pay down the debt. I know Julian has issues with that phrase, which perhaps he can speak to, but either way, it was a misunderstanding of what was actually weighing on the chancellor's mind when crafting this budget, because in truth, he had a far more immediate concern, and that was that these very agreeable conditions for borrowing might change. And even if they were to change ever so slightly, you see a very small uptick in interest rates and guilt rates and inflation, the chancellor would have to start finding tens of billions of pounds to pay just to service the debt, not to pay it down, not to tackle it, not to balance the books, just to pay off what we've already borrowed. And I think that helps to put the tax hikes, the corporation tax hike, freezing the personal tax thresholds into perspective. What's going through his mind when he brought in, you know, really things that you wouldn't expect to see in a Tory budget coming out of a pandemic. But he fears that if anything were to change, the UK would be powerless to handle the situation. And in particular, he's fearing inflation coming back. What happens if inflation rises? Well, if inflation were to rise just a little bit, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, especially when it comes to tackling the debt. But as Friedrich Hayek warned in 1969, and I include this in the piece, once the the, the cat's out of the bag, he, he calls it a tiger, you know, it's going to eat you up and it's very difficult to contain. And uh, Rishi Sunak is looking across the pond at President Joe Biden, who's about to pass a $1.9 trillion stimulus package, and that's going to land as America is reopening. They're also having a lot of vaccine success. It's becoming more mainstream to at least ask questions about what this will do. I would say that even a few months ago, the economic consensus was this is ridiculous to talk about. The fiscal hawks are fear-mongering. Don't worry about it. Now, all of a sudden, you've got Larry Summers on the left in the United States. You've got the chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, over here talking about inflation, not predicting it, but saying, you know, this the conditions might be changing. Things might be different this time round. And, you know, the, the chancellor is obviously very tuned to that. Julian, is the chancellor right to be worried? I think he's probably right to be worried about lots of things. And that's certainly the job of, of Treasury officials is to is to look for risks somewhere on the horizon. But um, I think, frankly, at the moment, inflation is the is the least of his problems. His his absolute priority should be, you know, supporting the economy during the period of lockdown. 
and then delivering strong growth as we, we recover. It may well be at the end of that process, then we get a bit of a pickup in inflation. But in those circumstances, that, that's no bad thing, as, as Kate actually alluded to. I think the circumstances in which interest rates would be likely to rise are precisely those where the economy is stronger and where inflation is higher. Uh, and overall, I think that could be a net positive for the public finances. Obviously, an increase in interest rates means the government has to pay more in interest. And the, the rough rule of thumb is that if interest rates and inflation go up by 1%, the Chancellor has to find an additional £25 billion from somewhere. But actually, a lot of that £25 billion could come from stronger growth. So as the economy recovers, tax revenues improve, he can pay less out in welfare payments. And any pickup in growth or inflation also reduces the real burden of debt. And this is where I think it's wrong to be talking in terms of paying down debt. The UK government has hardly ever done that in the sense of of running a surplus. Uh, What it's allowed to happen is that there's a, a stock of debt whose value relative to the size of the economy shrinks over time as the economy recovers. So I don't think there's any great need to reduce debt What I think we need to do is to boost economic activity. Mm. In those circumstances, yes, inflation and interest rates might rise, but overall we'll still be better off. Kate, will there be a period of time in which we can see inflation rising down the line, so having that lag in time and seeing it coming down the line, as it were? Is it just mainly, for example, Joe Biden's stimulus that's worrying yourself and the Chancellor? Because at the moment, the economy looks pretty much like it's hibernating. Well, the fear is that... Once it starts, it just starts to snowball and you can't control it and actually that it could happen very, very quickly. And that is why the chancellor is trying to create a bit of a reserve so that if he were to be sidelined by some kind of change, inflation's going up, interest rates are going up, he can handle the situation quickly. Because if you have to make really tough choices in the moment about where you're going to find, as Julian says, 25 billion pounds for a one percentage point increase, 50 billion for a two percentage point increase. Um, you know, you're now looking at the defense budget. Sooner or later, you're talking about real money. And to have to find that overnight is going to be really difficult. Julian, one particularly interesting part of Kate's piece, I thought, was her line that there's no playbook for what happens when you artificially suppress an economy, creating a staggering amount of pent-up demand, and then you release it, which is, of course, what we might see this summer. So could people of your school of thought be worrying a bit too much about the economy? Could it just bounce back faster than you expect? Well, actually, I I am an optimist on the economy. I think that the economy will rebound quickly, that um, we might be back at pre-COVID levels of economic activity as soon as uh, the third quarter of this year. Uh, In a sense, there is a playbook because that is what was happening last summer, you know, when the first lockdown was lifted. Economic activity was recovering strongly. Lots of people, including Andy Haldane, the Bank of England's chief economist, was talking about a V-shaped recovery. In the event that recovery petered out, partly because of, you know, fears of of a second wave. This time around, though, now we've got the vaccine in place and a much clearer exit strategy. I think it is right to talk about that V-shaped recovery being completed. But all that will do, of course, is basically take us back to where we were before the pandemic. That in itself shouldn't cause a, a big pickup in inflation. You know, we still have plenty of spare capacity in the economy. You know, unemployment is still going to be higher than it's been for a long time. I, I don't frankly see where inflation is going to come from. The one concern is, of course, the huge explosion in, in the money supply. Uh, and it might be that, you know, the Bank of England is you know, a bit quicker to to offset that in, in one way or another, perhaps including interest rates. But I suspect it's more likely to be that it simply stops QE. It doesn't buy any more government bonds and it leaves them on its books for, for the foreseeable future at very low rates of interest. I suppose part of it depends on 
how much you think the restrictions will truly be lifted this summer. If we are to believe the roadmap and we're back in nightclubs in June, then yes, this summer will be more open than the winter as last summer was more open than the winter. But last summer, we still had very strict rules around social distancing and social activity that could take place. And I think there's just so many unknowns. And again, this is this is the reason that it's weighing on the chancellor's mind. It's, it's not to say that he's predicting it. It's not to say that anybody's predicting it. But the question is, could it happen? and how prudent should one be to prepare for it? Because it's it's partially about the economy reopening, but it's also about what's happened in the past year. Globalization has been set into reverse. We don't know if that will come limping or roaring back. A lot of the conditions, as, as Andy Haldane discussed in his speech last week, Tiger by the Tail, have changed. You're not going to have another China that comes into the world's economy and, and can counter inflation in that way. So I just think it's, it's, it's the sense of the unknown, and it's about understanding Understanding where the Treasury is coming from, where a Tory chancellor is coming from when they raise taxes in their second budget coming out of a pandemic. Because I think on the face of it, it doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand. And you can argue they're being too cautious, they're being too prudent. But that is genuinely the fear. I think I'd just add two points to that. First of all, the risks that, that Kate was describing, for example, that we, we lift the lockdown a bit slower than we uh, we're hoping. Um, those are sort of downside risks to the economy rather than upside risks to inflation. And it, again, that's one of the points I was making earlier, that you know, what, what is the big issue now? It, it's growth, not not inflation. The second point, though, is I, I actually do have some sympathy for, for what the Chancellor was doing, not necessarily because I'm concerned about inflation and interest rates going up, but because I'm concerned that there has been a perception over the, the last year that, that there's no price to be paid for enormous amounts of government borrowing and spending and that you know, the state has had to do an awful lot more during the pandemic. Let, let's continue that and find new areas for the state to intervene and, and, and spend even more money. So I think you could explain the tax increases as a sort of a warning sign to the general public and indeed his colleagues in the cabinet who want to, to spend and spend and spend. That's not necessarily because he, he's worried about the, the the cost of that in terms of interest rates or inflation or uh, an excessive burden of debt. But simply, of course, the bigger the state gets, then the bigger the risk that it becomes less efficient. It starts doing things that the private sector could do a lot better. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate you know, conservative with a big C and a small C point of view, a free market point of view that would justify some small tax increases now as a price to pay to send a signal to keep spending down in future. Well, Julian, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Rishi Sunak's cabinet colleagues, actually, because, Kate, I thought your piece was very interesting in analysing where Boris Johnson's thought was on all of this, and he doesn't seem to be agreeing with his Chancellor. Boris Johnson likes to spend money. I'm not sure as I would go so far as to say that they don't agree, but I, I think that this has been a, a strange year in which to be talking about finances, right? Everybody has more or less agreed on the left and the right that this is wartime and this is when you spend a lot of money. I think we might see some emerging disagreements in the future as to how much more money can be spent because one of the many problems that the Chancellor has is that if they're sticking to the 2019 manifesto, and it appears they are, um, that rules out all kinds of tax hikes, not to say he'd necessarily want to do them, but actually I think one of the reasons you've seen him target corporation tax is because that wasn't ruled out and and many things have been. But also that the prime minister and arguably that manifesto also ruled out austerity in the form of spending cuts. They do not want to cut. They told the spectator, Boris Johnson told the spectator, I think about a year and a half ago, that he actually believed that the policy of austerity, austerity under the Cameron years had been a mistake. And so 
the chancellor has all of these spending projects that are just popping up left, right and center. You had the spending review that committed another hundred billion pounds to infrastructure that is on top of HS2 and, and, and many other commitments they've already made. He's the one who has to account for it. I think Julian makes an excellent point when he says that part of this is signaling. It's saying that what you spend now, there will be consequences for down the line. But I just don't think it's all signaling. I think that there are genuine fears playing on their minds about genuine shifts to the landscape when it comes to how easy it is to borrow. Julian and Kate, thank you very much. Next, with the rise of TikTok, so has come the rise of IRA TikTok. It's a phenomenon that Jenny McCartney writes about in this week's issue, and she joins me now, together with the Irish politician Maria Cahill, who writes on a Spectator's Coffeehouse blog this week about her run-in with the former Mirror editor Roy Greenslade, who over the weekend came out as an IRA supporter. Jenny, to start with, perhaps you can tell us what IRA TikTok looks like. It doesn't look great. I mean, those aren't words I would have maybe anticipated seeing together. But when you actually look at the the little videos, a lot of them are, you know, teenagers or people in their early 20s who never really experienced the troubles. And I think that's really the point that the IRA is now being idealised, the idea of it. People are dipping into it as a sort of identity thing and maybe it provides them with the feeling of being edgy. But of course, you're talking about a very real conflict and a lot of the people who were hurt or bereaved by that conflict are, are still with us and still feel that pain. So it's not only tasteless, but potentially quite dangerous in terms of our culture, I think. And it's clearly not just young people who seem to be taken in by the RA. I mean, your article comes in the aftermath of Roy Greenslade, former editor of The Mirror, coming out of as an IRA supporter in the Sunday Times. Maria, you had your own run-in with Greenslade, which you've written for about on Coffee House. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, well, basically, I had waived anonymity as a, an abuse victim, a child abuse victim, in 2014, October, the 14th of October. And... I told the story of, of essentially what happened to me. I had been abused by an IRA man um, at the age of 16 and onwards for about a period of a year. I wasn't the only child who was abused by that individual. Two other children also came forward subsequently um, to say that they had been. Um, and I gave an interview to the BBC Spotlight programme in Northern Ireland, basically talking about that and what happened in the aftermath. So I had been subjected to an IRA interrogation, investigation, whatever terminology people like to use for that for quite a long period of time. So when I was 18, October, November 99, right through to March 2000, and that first IRA investigation, because there were two of them, culminated in them bringing me into a room with my rapist to, quote, read our body language to see who was telling the truth. So essentially it, it was a horrendous experience to go through. It ended the first one in March 2000 with him going back into his membership of the Republican movement and then in July 2000, two other children came forward to say they had been abused and the IRA took it upon themselves to have another, in inverted commas, investigation into it. So it took quite a long time for me to go to the police, given the area that I was living in and also given the Republican connections, I suppose, that my father's family, side of the family, had. And I did pluck up the courage to go and make a police complaint and to cut a long story short, there was a four-year protracted trial process which collapsed then in May I think 2014 so I gave an interview to Spotlight in October of that year and everything kind of took off publicly 
and I was subjected to quite a few internet threats and graffiti on the walls in the area that I had been raped in in West Belfast. And then the Roy Greenslade piece dropped on the Guardian website. I had very little clue who Roy Greenslade was, but other journalists were able to fill me in on a bit of the background. As I understood it at the time, quite a lot of people knew that he had written previously for Infoblocked. And in, in light of that disclosure, I complained to the Guardian through a solicitor then. They backed him at the time. And then this disclosure prompted me to complain myself directly to them then this week. So it's quite a long kind of protracted story. It's hard to explain if people maybe don't have the nuance or they're not from here. Jenny, I think we'll probably get it because, you know, she is from here in terms of the level of control in which paramilitary groups can have over people. But I just thought it was pretty despicable that a child abuse victim comes forward and essentially then this cloak of caution is put around her credibility in terms of saying, well, you know, she may well have been raped and she may well have a problem with the IRA taking it upon themselves to investigate. But actually, she's politically attacking Sinn Féin, so we need mm. to be, be be careful around that. I thought that was quite despicable. And Jenny, it's not just bygone newspaper editors and young people on TikTok. You write about the much more mainstream support that parties like Sinn Féin and other more mainstream parties coming from those parliamentary military roots are having now. Can you talk a little bit about that appeal? Yeah, well, I, th- I think what has changed is that during the Troubles, the majority of people were against paramilitary activity, you, you know, be that UVF, UDA, IRA, and the, and the consensus in Ireland was, was against that. So since, since the violence has broadly stopped, what has happened is that a generation has grown up who doesn't know really anything about it. And it's almost, I think that there are parallels between No Raid, in a way, Roy Greenslade, and also some of these young people, that what they're really thinking about is their identity, their own feeling, the indulgence of a romantic, sentimental view of, of violence. And so that can feel like something quite attractive. Uh, they wrongly, in my view, put uh, authenticity in with violence. You know, they think the most authentically Irish expression is the most violent expression, which anyone who's really thought about it or experienced would, would say the opposite. But the problem is now is that they're, they're sort of playing games with real people's lives. And people who either went through that or experienced the kind of pressure that Mariah was talking about are aware of the intensity of pain and difficulty that people went through at the hands of members of those organisations. And so it feels like a sort of monstrous indulgence uh, to, to, to witness. Maria, a lifetime ago, you were also a Sinn Féin member. Can you understand the appeal? And perhaps is it, is it as Jenny describes, do you think, for, for these people? I think, in essence, in terms of young people and their politics, it probably always has been. You know, young people tend to be edgier. They tend to gravitate towards a more extreme form of political opinion. You know, generally, I think, well, certainly here anyway, you know, people tend to box you into one camp or the other. I tend to think of it as almost one big dysfunctional family, if that makes sense, and that, you know, my own family background, you know, was steeped in republicanism in terms of my father's extended family. My great uncle had been the chief of staff of the IRA. So there was always that kind of background. And I think probably because of the abuse, I was slightly more vulnerable than what other young people would have been at the time as well. And that was a, a pure fertile ground for anybody then, you know, who wanted to 
latch on to an articulate young woman who had a very good interest in politics and I always have had an interest in politics so I think from my own personal experience that probably had more to do with it than anything else. I'd never been a member of an illegal organisation but I certainly knew quite a lot of people who were, um, let's put it like that, and I think just on the general point in terms of the, and I do call it a dysfunctional family thing because it's nearly like this bonded together group that can be quite I hesitate to use the word safe in terms of that for young people. It's very hard to articulate, but certainly there was this feeling for me of having lots of these kind of people who, you know, I didn't necessarily, they weren't living in the same house as me or anything, but if they're all politically minded and they're all saying the same thing, you can be quite susceptible to that information. And I think that that's where the danger between what Roy Green said is saying now and what young people are doing, um, really, because Jenny used the word legitimacy. I think in terms of looking back at the past and that whole romanticised notion of these freedom fighters who were fighting the British Empire war machine actually doesn't stand up to scrutiny when you look at the amount of civilians that the IRA killed, for example, more than any other group did in the conflict. So, you know, which war were they fighting? Who who were they fighting? Because if you look at it from the very crass point of view, and I, I don't want to hurt anybody who has lost someone, but if you look at the figures, it just doesn't stack up. The other thing, you know, I remember quite a bit from, from growing up and being around Republican clubs in West Belfast was whenever they put, and this sounds quite twee, but I do think it feeds into a lot of the stuff that is TikTok now just through a different medium in the sense that when you had uh, singers, people, Republican groups singing in, in, and some of the songs could be quite brutal, you know, effectively they were actually murder ballads, you know, you would find quite a lot of young people would sing away to the beat or stand up and play our guitar, you know, mm. to, to different groups that were playing and there there's a, a safety in them being able to express that extremism without having to have been involved in it themselves if that makes sense and what Roy has done which is what I think is part of a wider issue in terms of trying to retrospectively legitimize the IRA actions is he has effectively tried to give it legitimacy you know he said well I came through all of these different things and this is how I felt about it and I'm now you know albeit I've paid off my mortgage and I you know I've had my career I'm now going to go back and say this was all acceptable. And I actually don't know how that that message has actually done him any favours in Ireland or in England. You know, I think people are quite open to the the prospect now of looking back at a conflict through rose-tinted glasses and forgetting about the absolute carnage and hurt and trauma that were caused to real living human beings. And in, in most cases for those families who have been left behind, you know, they're left with dead bodies and in some cases they can't even locate the remains of their loved one. I just think it's hor- it's a horrendous thing um, to do. That's not to say that he's not entitled to his political opinion. He is, of course, but he just shouldn't be a hypocrite whenever he's holding it. That's my opinion. Mm. And it didn't sound from his piece like he had many good, necessarily well-informed ways of knowing coming to that conclusion you know he he mentions who his neighbors are for example and that they were always kind well that's not that's not necessarily great enough it's a Jenny, strange do you think- thing for me sorry sorry for interrupting you um but it yeah. is a strange thing because essentially what he's saying is he fell in love with the woman and he took on her politics and then he managed to fit all of his own all those levels of cognitive dissonance around you know bombings that were taking place in england he managed to marry that against the fact that he had fallen head over heels in love with another human being 
And then he met this man, but he didn't want to ask what Pat Doherty's connections to the IRA might have been, despite the fact that they've been widely published. You know, he just decided to kind of shut off a part of his brain that was going to allow him to be sensitive to other human beings. And I think what strikes me about his piece is actually the level of desensitisation that Roy must have had to have gone through in order to keep up a double life for all of these years. The fact that he's proud of it and he's called himself some type of messenger. Like, he, he's no James Bond. Let's put it like that. So, I don't know. I just think it's a bit sad. Yeah. Jenny, for people in Ireland, do you think part of the appeal, um, especially for younger voters, is that they, Sinn Féin has never been in government and so they've never had to put their pledges to the test, as it were? I think it's absolutely that. And um, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have left a gap around issues like housing, healthcare... And Sinn Féin has rushed into the vacuum. So there's definitely been an appeal. And of course, it's been, as you say, untested by government. And I think that's a a big part of it. So for some young people, they'll be sort of overlooking the IRA history. But for others, I think it actually is genuinely part of the appeal. And I, I think, as we've seen in the last couple of years, a part of what I say in the piece is that, especially with Irish Americans and so on, there's a desire to kind of identify out of whiteness, you know, which is sort of seen as connected with racism and imperialism. And and so part of this in the milieu of the times is to try and pull something out of there, uh, a sort of rebel chic, a kind of anti-imperialist history. Now, of course, when you when you look at the day to day stuff of what the IRA were doing in Northern Ireland, the glamour of anti-imperialism certainly falls away. You know, if, if you were to look at the aftermath of a car bomb or, or a shooting and a devastated family. But reality doesn't often intrude, especially when you're miles, you're distanced by time or you're distanced by geography. What you're most concerned about is how this might make you look in front of your peers. Maria, how much of an impact do you think Brexit has had, and especially the form of Brexit that the UK has gone under i.e. putting a sea border down the Irish Sea, is that fodder for sectarian forces? I think on both sides it undoubtedly has had an impact. I think there's quite a level of anger within the loyalist community, for example, about at the minute. And I also think there has been a good capitalisation on the issue from the Republican side. So Essentially, they have used it to say, well, you know, we are now moving much closer to United Ireland because of Brexit. And people can now see that tangibly as, as a result. So come on board with us. You know, we've been right all along. And that, that's, that is essentially the message they're given from the unionist stroke loyalist end of things. I think there has been quite a lot of I, I think there's a feeling of betrayal by the British government in one sense around things that have been said in the past that have totally you know, not come to pass now. Mm. I think they are worried from an identity point of view that their identity is going to be railroaded. And I don't think that Irish republicanism or nationalism has actually helped that. I think it has exacerbated those tensions actually on quite a number of fronts. And I would have been... Brexit is always my worst subject because I just don't go down the EU politic route, but I, I kind of tend to be quite pragmatic about it on the ground. And I, I've made quite a lot of outreach across the community, particularly to the unionist community. And, you know, we talk to people all the time and say, what do you think your identity is? You know, it can't just be about a flag or a piece of territory or whatever. And it's very, very difficult to get behind that wall of what is your personal identity, never mind what you think 
your political identity is. And I think quite a lot of things here are wrapped up in that. But yeah, I mean, undoubtedly it has had an impact from, from both ends. And Jenny, finally, at the end of your piece, you suggest that education might be the way forward, that changing the curriculum or adding more realistic portrayals of history might be the way forward for changing opinions. How confident are you that that would work? Well, it might be worth trying because I think a lot of the problem is that outside of Northern Ireland and even generationally, people are just not aware of the detail of what went on on all sides, you know, the the pain that people had to carry. So I I think, uh, I mean, I always talk about lost lives just because these very factual, stark accounts of of the different ways in which people lost their lives, it's just, it's just a re-education in the reality of the time, really important. But one other thing I, I think is also important, building on what Maria said, is I think there is a real, a re, a real problem building because... Paradoxically, if unionists were to consider what kind of United Ireland might be possible for them, this this building uh, attitude of sectarian tribalism, uh, Sinn Féin success, celebrating the IRA, makes a kind of harmonious vision of any sort of future Ireland much less likely. So the very people who are supposedly most insistent on the importance of a United Ireland are culturally doing an awful lot to to make it less likely as a reality. And a, a destabilised unionism meeting with a kind of triumphalist re- republicanism, I know that really worries a lot of moderate nationalists as well as unionists. And I, I've seen a lot of people, nationalists, talking about this and they recognise it as a problem as well as finding it pretty abhorrent. Because let's not forget a lot of the SDLP used to be targeted by Sinn Féin activists and, and went through a great deal. So in terms of building a, a, a better place for everyone, it's heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I think there's just one other thing. Cause I, I think there's a misconception that actually all of the conflict here in the North or Northern Ireland, depending on what you, you like to call it, has gone. And actually it hasn't because quite in a lot of those working class communities, punishment attacks are still happening. There's still extortion in terms of money that is is being taken out of businesses to go towards paramilitaries. Quite a lot of people who were former paramilitaries have control of so-called community groups and they're still funded by levels of the government. And I think that until that is tackled, a lot of the communities, if you go to the Lower Shankill, for example, or you look at Ardoin, there's quite a lot of poverty around the place. The educational attainment is not great. Some of them are third generation unemployed. There are a whole plethora of problems affecting those communities. And in terms of looking at the bigger picture of identity or or where or who governs that, actually, I think, is looking at it from the wrong end of the kaleidoscope. You know, we should be looking at those inter-communities and intra-community relationships and trying to completely eradicate paramilitarism and the hold that they have and the control that they have over people. Because until you do that and until you kind of lance that scab that just keeps kind of healing over every now and again and then erupting, you're not going to get any level of stability in, in those communities for those people. And if you don't do that, you're not going to be able to get stability for the country as a whole. That would be very much where I would come from on it. Jenny and Maria, thanks very much. And finally, 
What makes a good diary? A new one of Henry Chips Channon, a former MP and a 20th century socialite, has come out, edited by Simon Heffer. It's reviewed by the satirist Craig Brown in this week's issue of The Spectator, and both Simon and Craig join me for the podcast now. Simon, to start with, can you explain who Henry Channon was, also known as Chips? Well, he was born in Chicago in 1897, and he was born into a relatively prosperous family. His father ran a shipping line on the Great Lakes. And he had a very aspirational mother, especially. Uh, aspirational in a not just a social way, but also in an intellectual way. And she took him as a child around Europe, uh, particularly to France, to try and give him some European culture. And he volunteered for the Red Cross in 1917, when America entered the war, to go to France and to serve there, which he did. But... It wasn't quite the sort of war where you go into the trenches and get covered in mud and shot at by Germans all day. It was spent in the Faubourg in Paris with duchesses and countesses who were all friends of his mother's. And it's like something out of Proust. He goes to one grand dinner and grand lunch and grand ball after another. When the war ended, he came briefly to Britain and really liked Britain and decided he was going to become British. So he came back and went for two years to Christchurch, Oxford, where he read French, uh, didn't get a very good degree, but that didn't really matter. And then he took about the next 10 or 15 years to make himself into a proper English gentleman. He was largely taught to do that by Lord Curzon. He married an earl's daughter. His wife's family, who were the Guinnesses, were incredibly generous to him. They not only gave him a house, in fact, two houses, to live in, but uh, they also gave him a seat in Parliament because he inherited more or less from his mother-in-law, Lady Ivor, the seat of Southend-on-Sea in Essex. And he was an MP there for 23 years until he died quite young at the age of 61, largely of years of eating, drinking and taking too much Benzedrine. And he kept these diaries from 1918 with one or two interruptions through until the year before his death. And Craig, those diaries are what you've reviewed for The Spectator this week. What was your impression of Chips after reading the first volume of his diaries? Did you like him? Well, I had read the extremely expurgated volume, which Robert Rhodes James edited, and which I think came out in 1967. And so everyone who's interested in diaries would have read this sort of, these rather abbreviated diaries, because they are kind of really good fun to read. But uh, Simon's edition is so unexpurgated that it's almost like reading a, a completely different volume. And if you thought that he was rude about people in the first volume, well, <laughs> you've got quite a surprise waiting for you in the second. And also all his vices are far worse. So his vanity, his social climbing, everything. And it's incredibly well ed- edited by Simon, but... There are kind of gaps you want to know on a sort of gossipy level. His marriage and its breakup, you you only really hear about through Chips's words, and so he blames his wife for having affairs, but you sort of feel that he must be having affairs at the same time. At the one point, he says, after something like three years, eight months and two weeks, his wife says she can't have sex with him, won't have sex with him anymore. And he appears to be mystified by this, but I suspect... Simon will tell me, or perhaps he doesn't know. I suspect Chips was caught at it with a, a young man or, or something or other, and, and his wife went off him for that reason. So there's a soap opera going on as well in these, in these diaries. Simon, Chips' sexuality was, incredible, was pretty fluid, I thought, reading, <laughs> reading about him. Yes, he obviously was bisexual, and indeed by the time we get to volumes two and three, 
which covered the period from 1938 to his death. He's not even bisexual, he's homosexual, and he's interested almost entirely only in men. In the first volume, it's rather difficult. I mean, he talks about having gone on honeymoon with his friend Lord Gage and to have had passionate feelings for him, but he never alludes to the fact that there might have been any physical activity between them. And when his wife, as Craig correctly says, won't sleep with him, he doesn't go off and pick up a rent boy. He goes off to Shepherd Market and picks up a female prostitute. And, which I suppose is not the normal thing for a man to do who's homosexual. So I'm quizzical about Chips's sexuality. It all changes very early on in volume two. He meets the man who becomes his partner for life, Peter Coates, in July 1939. And from that moment on, he only has eyes for him. Well, for a while, anyway. And then he has eyes for other men. But he certainly loses interest in women. And while there's plenty of evidence that his wife was having affairs while they were still married, and although Chips forms very close friendships with men, there's a Tory MP called Jim Thomas, who he spends a lot of time with and goes and visits late at night, but they just seem to talk about things, or according to Chips they do, We've no evidence that he engages in sexual activity with men really before Coates comes onto the scene in 1939. But because I'm a slightly boring old-fashioned historian, unless I've got absolutely cast-iron evidence, I don't like to speculate. And therefore, I, I haven't written in the introduction of this volume that he was carrying on a, a bisexual life. But I've certainly written that in the introduction to the second volume, which is coming out in September. Craig, in your experience, what do you think makes a good diarist and is Chips, is, is it just his life that makes him a good diarist or is it also perhaps the way he uses language? I mean, he's pretty cutting about some of the people he comes across, including his constituents. I think often with diaries, political as, as well as non-political, it's the opposite of qualities in a person that make a good diarist. So, so it's the vices. It's one of which is vulgarity and a kind of quality of unashamedness, if that's a word, and disloyalty. All these things make... I mean, even if you think of Pete, probably the greatest diarist, there's a lot of disloyalty in there and, and a lot of sharing thoughts which normal people don't want to have, if you see what I mean. Conventional people don't want to say, I thought in this way. And so Chips certainly qualifies on that front. He's not as they say these days, virtue signalling at all. And so I think a good diarist, I mean, whether it's Kenneth Williams or, you know, Alan Clark or anyone, you don't want a virtue signaller. You want someone who just, who says what he's thinking, quite regardless of the audience. And Simon, one thing we haven't mentioned so far is Chips's unfortunate support for the Nazis and indeed the senior leaders of the Nazi party were the few people who escaped his criticism. How should modern readers interpret that? Well, Chips is very naive and very stupid and I'm afraid like most people in Britain in 1936, when he went as a guest of the German government to the Olympic Games, he had not read Mein Kampf. If he had, he'd have known exactly what Hitler planned to do with Europe and with the Jews, for example. So I think the first thing we have to bear in mind when we read what he got up to in 1936, when on successive nights he went to parties given by Goebbels, Goering and Ribbentrop, is to remember that we have the benefit of hindsight and he didn't, although there were ways he could have informed himself better about what was going on. The only political justification one can find for Chips's idiotic behaviour towards the Nazis is that 
he, like many in his class, not just in this country, but also in, in France and Italy, and of course in Germany, saw the Nazi party and its avowed hatred of Bolshevism and Stalin as a bulwark against a communist takeover in Europe and in this country. And you must remember, in 1936, it was only 18 years since the Tsar and his family had been machine-gunned in a cellar in Yekaterinburg and chucked down a salt mine. And there were many people genuinely in this country and in the rest of Europe who believed that if the communists took over Europe, that would happen to them. And there'd be a repeat, if you like, of 1793. And that's, you know, Chips keeps saying that. I mean, Chips says explicitly in the diaries, why won't my fellow Britons realise that Hitler is fighting their battles for them? And again, in volume two, when Chips realises that there's going to be a pact between Molotov and Ribbentrop, and then Hitler ends up attacking the Soviet Union two years later, his tune changes somewhat. I mean, he's a very slow learner. He is, for a man who is in politics professionally, he is incredibly unobservant about what's actually happening in politics. And again, that's a paradox because he's such a good observer generally. Simon and Craig, thanks very much. And that's it this week. Do pick up an issue of The Spectator in order to read all of the pieces discussed. And you can also find in there a diary by Tina Brown, Douglas Murray on his take of the Roy Greenslade confession, and much, much more. Thanks for listening to this episode and do join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.